Section 3 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 3. 3. On Thursday, January 28th, we crossed the Gulf of Suez in a sailing boat and landed on the shores of Asia to find that we must wait two hours for the arrival of our camels, who had to cross the canal and pass through a troublesome custom house by a pontoon bridge higher up. We amused ourselves during luncheon with the antics of some baggage camels, each of which had a front leg tied up to prevent its wandering. Some hopped about on three legs, whilst others walked on two hind feet and two front knees. One got a good beating on its long neck from its angry master, and filled the air with the thunder of its growls. The sheik, who had been presented to us on the previous evening, appeared at half-past one with three dromedaries. He was a mild-looking young man, for the office's hereditary, nearly blind of both eyes, who showed us his appreciation of the situation by saying to Hannah, "'The ladies command you, and you command us.' The feat of mounting having been successfully accomplished, we started across a desolate plain of sand, following a beaten track which is constantly being effaced by the wind-blown sand, and, like other desert routes, is sometimes only to be discerned by the help of a tiny pile of stones placed there by the Bedouin. At four o'clock we reached a patch of palm trees and gardens, fenced by low mud walls, clustering round the brackish wells of Ain Musa, the spot where Miriam is supposed to have begun her song of triumph. As we gazed on the interminable succession of low, sandy ridges to our left, we could not help thinking that the host of Israel had some excuse for grumbling at a leader who was taking them where no food and no water could be seen. The pillar of cloud was indeed there, moving along the very path we were traversing, but it must have been as hard for them to believe in its almighty grace as it is for us to trust in our divine leader when the course of this world seems going against us. He does not always explain his purposes. But the events which have made this district immortal in history are now stamped on the memory of the human race. They were one of the first lessons taught to mankind by our Creator, that He is a just God, and a God in whom we must implicitly trust. Whilst our tents were being pitched, a man named Andreas invited us into a tiny square hut, separate from his house, spread some matting over the sandy floor, and placed some cushions on a shelf that we might rest. He also gave us a cup of Turkish coffee. Our sleeping tent was most comfortable, but we had a wakeful night, as the wind was strong and we feared it might blow us down. We rose at half-past six, but the Bedouin were so slow in getting the camels loaded that we did not start till a quarter to nine. Our path ran through the limitless desert, over very stony ground, where a few tufts of sapless heath or of spiky thorns enticed our camels to stop and nibble. Sometimes the ground was sprinkled with flakes of shining white quartz, suggesting manna. We lunched on a hillock at one o'clock, then rode for three hours and a half over a perfectly flat plain, with now and then a glimpse of the sea to our right and interminable sandy mounds to our left. We often crossed the tracks of flood torrents, and our Bedouin guides told us that a month ago this plain was like a lake. They have had rain four times this winter, and each time several men with their camels have been washed into the sea. We reached our tents at half-past five, just as the sun was setting. 
They were pitched on a little stony eminence surrounded with tufts of shrubs. The place is called Wadi Sadur. The wind blew fiercely on the tent, but we hoped it might change with the new moon which was to appear that night. Next morning we rose at six, and at half-past seven we started on foot over a flat expanse of sand, leaving our men to pack up. At half-past eight our dragoman, Hana, overtook us with our dromedaries, and for five hours we marched along, glad when an occasional sand-hillock broke the monotony of the landscape, or a glimpse of the sea with the blue mountains of Africa beyond it, made us content that we were on the safer side, for the hills on which we were gazing are seldom explored by Europeans. Our only diversion was an occasional attempt to read a Hebrew psalm, which, though in clear large type, bobbed up and down in a way that was fatiguing to our eyes. So we had to be content with listening to the chatter of our Bedoui escort, in a dialect which was only partially intelligible to us. The only times when we understood them perfectly was when they spoke to our Syrian dragoman. We also encouraged Selim, my sister's guide, to imitate the gurgle in the camel's throat. The men themselves were an interesting study. The skin of their bare black legs is hardened by time and dirt into real hard leather. Their feet are protected by the thinnest of goatskin sandals. Their clothing consists of a single flowing cotton garment, more or less white, and a black abaya of goatskin, sewn together with twine and well patched. Their only signs of luxury are the gay silk kafiyet, which forms part of their turbans, and the long pipe which they hand to each other by turns, lighting it with a spark from a flint. All carried the most primitive of swords, and Selim was burdened with a long gun which suggested doubts as to its ability to go off. My guide, Aagi, had made a pet of the seven-year-old camel which carried me, ornamenting its pretty brown furry neck with a shell-sewn red collar, sharing with it an occasional bit of maize bread, and pulling for it choice bits of the dry desert shrubs. At half-past twelve we dismounted, just where the ground was getting broken up into little sand hillocks, and real rock mountains were coming into view. The sheik came up with the baggage camels whilst we were lunching, and it was here that the first dispute between us and our dragoman took place. We had, in our contract with him, reserved to ourselves the right of choosing the resting places, and had it intimated our intention of always resting on Sundays. The natural place to stop that night, after an eight hours' ride from Wadi Sadur, would have been Wadi Amara, or else Ain Haura, two hours further on. Both claimed to be the site of Mara, and in neither is there now water near the surface, although Ain Haura has a little pasturage for camels. I told Hana we must stop for the night at one of these places, as neither of us felt quite well after our first experiences of camels and wind-shaken tents. We had told him at Cairo that eight hours a day was the utmost we could do, but that, for the camel's comfort, we were willing to ride two hours further on Sunday morning to Wadi Gorandel, Elim, where there was abundance of forage and chalky water. Hana thereupon deliberately ordered the sheik to go on straight with both tents and camels to Wadi Gorandel. It was a very arbitrary proceeding, but it was he who had hired the Bedouin, and our only means of bringing him to account for it was by resolving to deduct two pounds from the present we intended to give him at the end of the journey. We had unfortunately contracted to pay him a stated sum for the whole trip, and an entire Sunday's rest meant that he would deduct that day's pay from the Bedouin, 
though he had told us in making our contract, that resting days would be charged the same as traveling days. I also heard him tell the sheik that we wished to stay a day at Elim on account of our photographing, a statement which I resolved to take my own way of correcting. Starting at two o'clock, we passed through Wadi Wardan, the Valley of Roses, so called ironically, because its surface is strewn with bits of black flint. The setting sun now showed us the first shadow of a hill that we had yet seen, and the cloud shadows on the desert are wonderful. When you see one, you ride on thinking to get into it. Then all at once the black thing vanishes and reappears farther away to the right or left. It was almost dark when we passed the solitary palm tree of Ein Haura. We reached Wadi Gurundel at a quarter to seven, our last half hour being done quite in the dark. This we did not consider at all safe in a country where the path can only be discerned by the footprints of those who have gone a few hours before us. How delighted we were to see the glimmer of our tent candles, and how pleased to dismount and wait till Hannah had unrolled our beds, and Khalil, the cook, had sent us in a cup of black coffee, preparatory to a good dinner, extracted out of the flesh pots of Egypt, which truly we had brought with us. A little rain fell through the night, and the morning sun awoke our bevy of hens, turkeys, and doves, released from the durance vile of their coops, and wandering over the desert in a vain quest for worms. Aagi asked me if we had stopped at Gorundal to photograph, and I replied, No, the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. If we were at home we should go to church, but as we cannot do so we must keep it sacred from work. Protestant travelers who do not speak Arabic can never know how much of their influence is lost through the misrepresentations of their dragomen. How much more these primitive people would respect us if we were not so often ashamed of confessing our faith. Wadi Garandal is a long valley filled with a host of little sandy mounds, covered with a shrub like the arbor vitae, which is much cut down for campfires. A few palms and the stumps of others which have come to an untimely end reminded us of its ancient glories when it had twelve springs of water and three score and ten palm trees. The Arabs, like the Greeks and Italians, are very wasteful in the matter of their wood. A little careful culture might make the Wadi Gurundel a splendid oasis, but it is no man's business, though at present it is a vital question for the good of all. We started on Monday morning at half-past seven on foot, Salim accompanying us to show us the path. I made him thoroughly understand that we had come to this country to see the way by which Nebi Musa led the Israelites, and that we consider it a figure of how God leads us along the hard path of our earthly life. I told him also why we rested on Sunday, because God told Nebi Musa that we were to do so from the top of Mount Sinai but that the day was changed because on the first day of the week our Lord, the Messiah, rose from the dead with the promise that we too shall rise to be with him in heaven. To all this Salim assented. The path led all day betwixt limestone hills. We passed through Wadi Usait, the rival Elim, with its few plundered palm trees, and soon saw a heap of stones marking the grave of a mare whose owner spurred her to death. Each one of our guides kicked some sand on it with his bare feet and spat to show his abhorrence of the deed. We lunched under two palm trees in Wadi Ethal and photographed them. We also administered a quinine pill to Aagi, who had been unable to eat any breakfast. 
A stranger came and ate with the other men, helping himself freely from their pots. It had rained on the previous day in Wadi Tayebe, for there was a little rill whose water, like all in this limestone region, had become bitter. We reached the seashore at half-past four, and here Hana's camel had a fight with its master, who tugged and jerked at the rope round its nose. The rocks here are very beautiful, showing alternate layers of yellow and red sandstone. We reached our tents at half-past five. End of section three. Recording by Hannah Mary.